0: So I hope we remember that uh, as we dive in. Now, <laughs> for me, in my life, not, there's a date that's specific to me that made a drastic change in my life. And that was October 25th, 2011. I know what you're thinking. No, it wasn't, it wasn't the birth of one of my daughters. you think that would be, be there. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it's not our anniversary. Even Amanda right here, she's probably crunching your mind of what happened in October 2011 because she can't think of it. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, um, it was when the Chicago H- Cubs hired Theo Epstein as the president of baseball operations for the Chicago Cubs. And this was his introductory press conference over 10 years ago when he became the president of baseball operations. He's no longer the, base, the president of baseball over operations. But Theo, he, he never played Uh, for the Cubs. He never caught a fly ball or hit an RBI, but what he did do is he helped orchestrate in the background, manage and create and build a team that would eventually win the World Series in 2016. And on October 25th, 2011, he had this introductory press conference like they all do when there's these new regimes and new management changes that take place Usually the GM usually takes it and kind of talks about what they want to see from the team. And then he says, I firmly believe that we can preserve the things that makes the Cubs so special and over time build a consistent winner, a team that will be playing baseball in October consistently and a team that will ultimately win the World Series. I've waited a few weeks to say this, but it truly feels great to be a Cub. So usually, during these press conferences, they always talk about there's guarantees of winnings coming in. The wins are going to come, and you celebrate that. But the question comes into mind is, like, at what point does it not become true? Like, at what point do these promises fail, and at what point do we consider them accurate and fulfilled? I mean, when we look at Theo's record, To The first three years he was here, 2012, 2013, 2014, they were horrible years for the Cubs. In fact, 2012 is historically one of the worst seasons ever by any Cubs team, and it's over 100 years of history. So where were these wins that Theo was talking about? Well, sure enough, in 2015, things started to turn around for the team. A lot of their prospects started coming up, and they made some valuable trades. We won some games. We got to play in October. And then that following season, the Cubs did win the World Series and the city of Chicago finally got to celebrate a World Series. Um, And as you can see, Theo made promises about how the team was going to play. But would you say those promises were accurate? I mean, when would we say that we would expect the winning? Was it the first game of the, of the 2012 season when he was the first manager? Was it when they finally got that winning season for the first time? Or when they made the playoffs? Or when they finally won the World Series? You know, Theo's promises, I would say, started the second he got hired, but they didn't come to full fulfillment until they, were, they won that first World Series of over 100 years. And in our scripture today, we are going to talk about a prophecy that Isaiah made that came true during his time, but only came to its full complete fulfillment until Jesus' birth hundreds of years later. Earlier this morning, Amanda and the girls, they read our scripture, so I'm not going to read for us today, but it is out of Isaiah chapter 7, and it's verses 10 through 16, and it's this prophecy Um, that we need to make sure that we understand the context. So let me share with you a little bit about what's going on in Isaiah's time and who is he talking to and what's so important about this prophecy that's being made. So uh, hundreds of years before Jesus comes in, Isaiah is a prophet of God who is somebody who is speaking on God's behalf. And as he is sharing messages, he is in the country of Judah. The Israel has been split into two different nations. There's the northern nation, which is Israel, and then the southern nation, Judah. And Judah is King David and his lineage. And in his lineage, one of his, his, uh, one of his heritage is King Ahaz, who was king at this time. And he's reigning over Judah. And as this is going on, there's this global superpower that's starting to rise up and starting to take hold of the area, and it's the Assyrians. The Assyrians are coming in, they're starting to take over. It's kind of getting kind of scary for all of these countries and these nations in this small little area in the Middle East. And so, for two countries specifically, Aram and the northern tribes of Israel, so Israel and Aram, they were kind of on the precipice of having to fight this global superpower, Assyria. So they start getting worried. They know it's a very mighty force. So the first thing that they do is they start to ally with one another. So Aram and Israel, they're joining forces together to kind of be more formidable in defeating and trying to defend off these Assyrians. But they're worried that this isn't enough. So they naturally want to invite Judah the country of Judah, into him as well. So they reach out to King Ahaz, and despite their greatest courtship, Ahaz refuses. He's not interested in fighting the Assyrians. He doesn't think that's a good idea. He doesn't want to be a part of it. Well, that... As most people who, you know, seek out a courtship and fail, they get quite upset. And so the kings of Aram and Israel decide, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go and we're going to attack Israel or Judah instead. We'll go to Jerusalem. We'll attack it. We'll capture King Ahaz, kill him. And then we'll set up this puppet monarchy who will do what we want them to do. Be part of our alliance and be part of this ally that we can fight against the Assyrians. So Ahaz hears about this plot that's going on. He sees the army starting to come in and he starts getting worried about what to do. How is he going to cover his own self? And more importantly, how is he going to save his personal monarchy? So he starts making plans. And the first thing he thinks of is a a quote that we probably all think of, is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so he starts having conversations with Assyria, saying, would you be interested in me being a servant to you? If I come under your flagship, if I swear my allegiance to you, would you help protect me against these other nations? And it's in this moment that Isaiah comes in and he meets he meets Ahaz. They're out kind of right outside the city wall. There's this pool here. And Isaiah comes and shares with him that that he is not aligning himself properly to God. That he needs to start aligning, not with the Assyrian nation or another nation, but to trust in God and in his plan that God would provide. But Ahaz doesn't listen. He doesn't want to hear it. It's a little too, you know, spiritual for him. He doesn't understand. That's not a practical step. So he's still making these plans. And in this moment, Isaiah comes and tells Ahaz that God is dependable. And so much so that God grants him to ask anything in the scriptures it Says, ask anything from as low as she hold, which is another word for hell to as high as the heavens ask for anything and I'll give it to you as a sign. Pretty big parameters. And Ahaz in this moment he uses his excuse and he says he doesn't want to put the Lord to the test. Ahaz is referring to Deuteronomy 616 where it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, this command, however, is trying to convince the people of God not to test God because God is reliable. However, God is trying to show his reliability to Ahaz, and Ahaz is rebuffing it because he doesn't want to see God as reliable. And so Ahaz is using this le- same logic not to put his faith in God by not asking for a sign. And so it, it's kind of like this, old, uh, there's an Old Testament scholar, Otto Kaiser, who is a, a German, and he put it this way. He goes, there are situations in which outward piety and inward unbelief are identical. And this is what we see Ahaz. Ahaz uses some scripture to kind of twist his way into not having to make a commitment to God because he's worried, well, if he asks for a sign and God shows up like he's going to do, then he's not going to be able to do what he wants to do with this Assyrian um, alliance. So God isn't having it. He tries to wiggle his way around this command and God just refuses to be a part of it. And so instead... God gives him a sign anyway. And this is where we get in verse 14, the very famous words. I'm going to read this verse 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and good, and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, similar to our Theo Epstein reference earlier uh, with his news conference about winning, I think there's multiple layers of this prophecy. One that applies to Ahaz in his current situation, but also one that applies to a future child this one that is to come, the one that is not just for Judah, but for all nations, and that's the coming Messiah. But in both situations, I think similar lessons can be gained from them. Now, this is a hotly debated topic, kind of trying to interpret these words, trying to go back to ancient Hebrew, which nobody speaks anymore, and trying to learn, like, what was it that Isaiah was trying to communicate and I think after reading all of this and all the details and looking at the, at the um, circumstances around it, that most likely Isaiah is giving a prophecy with multiple meanings. One that's fulfilling in his time, but then one that is referring to the Holy Spirit as well. So I think in this moment, Isaiah is here with this pool talking to King Ahaz. And as you might imagine, the women are coming and filling up their water jars with water. And I'm sure as this is taking place, Isaiah is trying to convince Ahaz to trust in God. And as Ahaz continues to refuse, you can see Isaiah, just his frustration, and he looks out and he probably points at You see that virgin? That virgin, at one point, she's going to get married, she's going to have a kid, and by the time that kid knows good from bad, and when they... And, Ancient Israel, that was kind of like 12 to 13 years old. Once they got to that young adolescent age, these two nations that you were so worried about aren't going to exist anymore. And sure enough, this is accurate. Within the 12 to 13, time, 12 to 13 years after this conversation does take place, first of all, Judah is saved. There is no concern that they have going on with this but within that 13 years period Aram is completely destroyed Israel is taken as well the northern tribes are destroyed the people are spread out throughout the nations and kind of integrated into the Assyrian empire and they are completely gone and Ahaz was worried and concerned about something that never came to pass because God was there and God provided And like I said, though this prophecy, as you might imagine, also refers to an even greater salvation, more than just political and military that we see within hundreds of years ago in ancient Israel, but it applies to our lives today. It's the life of God incarnate coming down to earth in Jesus Christ. And it is through a literal virgin birth, that Matthew is able to take this same exact scripture and interpret it correctly in Matthew chapter one. He says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken about the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what value is God coming down and being with us mean? What is, I mean, and does Emmanuel have any significance to us uh, that a prophecy close to now 3,000 years old have to our lives? What change could that mean? It can mean everything to us. If we look at the implications of what that phrase, God with us, can actually mean. And so today, while there are many implications, I want us to focus on uh, three ways that is huge that God with us impacts our lives today. If God is with us, if that is actually true, if Emmanuel is true and what we celebrate during the Christmas time of Jesus coming down, if that is accurate, that can mean that one, God acts, two, God is sufficient, and three, God. God fulfills his promises. God acts, God is sufficient, and God fulfills his promises. The first one is that God acts. This goes back to uh, a very basic theological conversation is, how does God relate in regards to his creation? Does God exist? If God does exist, how does he intervene in the world that he created Is he like a clockmaker who makes a clock but then lets it be and lets it run its course all by itself without intervening? Or does he relate to his creation, relate to his people, and move in and make changes when he sees fit? If he does act, is there a rhythm, a purpose, or practice of his intervention that we can know and see firsthand? Well, if we look at the name Emmanuel, God with us, and we believe it to be true, there's a few conclusions that we can already make. First, we can conclude that God is real because God is with us. We can conclude that God does get involved in the lives of his creation, that he does act because he doesn't just stand outside of time and space and doesn't do anything and just kind of watches us like we're on a TV screen, but God moves in and becomes a part of the story. It's almost as if William Shakespeare was entering into his own play. And we can understand that he is able to make a difference in our lives as well. So in the story of King Ahaz, Ahaz assumed that he would have to find a solution to his, on his own, that he would have to act and move as though God doesn't exist anymore. He makes arrangements as best as he saw fit. But God didn't leave Judah on its own. God was already working in the background in a way to save them from their current predicament. And in Jesus, God acted in our lives as well. We are cel- when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating the invasion of the immortal putting on flesh and walking among us. One with so much power and majesty, laying it to the side in order to experience humanity firsthand and to show us what it was like to live a life of complete dependence on God and a life and a life that from Jesus's first breath was bound for the cross. I love the way Augustine of Hippo uh, put it, and he, he writes this, and I, I love it. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, man's maker was made man, that he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. I love that because in Jesus is life, but he chose death and gave up that for our acts alone. So God does not leave us alone and sit in, in power and in comfort on his own and just says, man, it stinks to be you. I wish I could help, you know. He doesn't, he doesn't just do that, but he intervenes. He moves in. He became part of the neighborhood and put became one of us. And this came 2,000 years ago. And it happened when Jesus ascended into heaven, he again did not just leave us to our own devices, but he also sent the Holy Spirit that would indwell in us to where we would never have to be alone again. So God with us is not just a reference to Jesus, but it's also a reference that God would never leave us ever again. I love how Jesus says this himself in John chapter 16. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the name for the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I, send, if I go, I will send him to you. It is to our advantage that Jesus did exactly what he did. So that way the Holy Spirit can come and be a part of us and experience life with us. that we can walk hand in hand because Jesus understood what it was like to be human, understood what it was like to be dirty, to understand difficulties, to understand the hardships that we have in our lives. He experienced it firsthand so that way he can share with you that I am with you. You know, a, a few months ago, at actually our last church-wide family meal that we all had together. Um, we were enjoying our time at our old building in, in, the, in the Hyde Park Church. And again, as you might imagine, my daughters were there, and they were more interested in talking than they were in eating, and were very, having a great time sharing the meal. and And, and In one moment, as somebody is so excited to share and talk and goof around, our youngest, Kyla, ends up spilling her water on herself. And she starts getting so upset that she spilled water on her outfit and that she was all wet. And now, this is water. It really didn't create that much damage, but Kyla was just really bothered and upset. And as I was holding her, she was still upset. She wouldn't calm down. And it just didn't seem to want to be comforted. So it was in that moment that I made a choice. So I grabbed my own water and spilled it on myself. And it was in that moment that Kyla started laughing. And it's not because of something magical that I did. It was just because that she now understood that I was willing to go where she went. If she had a wet shirt, so could I. And to help her realize that even now, I can still say it was not a big deal, even with a wet shirt on myself. That other people make spills, that it's not a huge issue. But it wasn't until I came down into her own predicament that everything appeared that it was going to be okay. In your life, I know often there are moments where you feel like you may be on your own in this that there are times where you are dealing with issues, issues at work, trouble with coworkers, dealing with anxiety, issues with your family, trying to struggle along and your, your family just bearing down on you, problems with your health, struggling with loneliness, with fear, with anxiety, struggling with a constant sin that's cropping up in your life that you can't seem to kill. I hope that this Christmas season be a constant reminder to you that you are not alone. That God is with you. That he is willing to pour the water on his shirt to be with you where you are. May every light on a house or on a tree or even on this stage be a symbol of the light of the world coming down to earth to be among his people and to be personally with you. God acts in your life. He is not silent. He is moving and working for your good. So God acts. And then the second one is that God is also sufficient. And that's where it's so important for us to understand that with God, there is no plan B. With God, there's only room for one Savior. I think so many of us want to have a backup plan for our lives. Well, this whole If faith doesn't work out, well, then I have my family who's going to love me at least. Or if this doesn't work out, I've got my job that I can trust and put my hope in. Or my finances. There's so many things that we want to base our trust and our hope. But with God, that's not how this works. God wants all of you. He wants every single piece. And he will not take a plan B as an okay response. Complete dependence on God is the only thing that works with God, with us, with Emmanuel, because there's just no room. Ahaz Ahaz didn't need to align himself to a larger nation that could defend his monarchy. He needed to align himself to God. And God is all Judah needed then, and God is all that we need now. You know, sin is a problem that is without a human solution, Man has always tried to just try and fix it on our own. You know, if we can just make up for our mistakes. You know, if I break something, then I fix it, then it's okay. Or if I, if I work really hard through my work of self will, self will, then everything will be all right. Maybe if I get some self help books and. and improve myself, maybe that's going to fix the problem. Maybe if I try and be super religious and make sure that I'm crossing off all the marks of what a good Christian would look like. Yet time and time again, we fall short. Unfortunately, sin is a problem without a solution for plan B. But fortunately for us, God has already come up with that solution. One that involved that baby 2,000 years ago coming down to earth, and being God incarnate, because man couldn't come up with the solution itself, God provided the solution for us. and that's what the Incarnation is truly about, that God that Jesus was fully man and fully God, and he came down and lived this perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. And through that perfect sacrifice, it made in a way for us to have salvation to have a way when we did have no way. And I love how God continues to provide for us. Uh, The verse that comes to mind for me is Philippians 4, 19, where it says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So I just hope that we remember that when we sing and we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, it doesn't just mean that God is is this cute little baby, but that God acts, he's moving in our lives, but then also that God is sufficient, that he is more than enough for you this morning. And then lastly, I want us to believe that God fulfills his promises. God doesn't go back on his word. Everything that he has said he would do has come to pass and, ha- and will come to pass one day. God made a promise to Abraham to make a great nation out of him. And sure enough, it came true. God promised a land that was beautiful and, and filling. And even though Abraham never got to actually live in it, hundreds of years later, it came true. God promised to save his people from oppressive Egypt through his, his servant Moses. And it was completely fulfilled. Throughout the Old Testament, we see promises of protection, redemption, and deliverance. Even in Joshua, as Joshua is leading his people into this new promised land, he says not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All have come to pass. Throughout it all, there were prophecies made about somebody coming to fix everything. Throughout it all, there was this conversation about that a Messiah would come, not just for Israel, but for all nations. And all prophecies made about this coming Messiah were fulfilled in the life of Jesus, including the unbelievable prophecy that he would be born of a virgin. In the situation with King Ahaz, it is true that within 13 years of the conversation, the nations of Aram and Israel would be destroyed and that Judah would still be standing. When God makes a promise, it always comes through. And God keeps his promises to you as well. You know, a promise to be with you and not forsake you. A promise to be present and to not be absent. A promise to show you life abundant and life everlasting. Now, one of my all-time favorite movies is, is a movie called Cinderella Man. I know it's a weird name, uh, but it's actually about a boxer during the Great Depression. And the boxer's name, it's, it's based off a true story. His name's Jim Braddock. Jim Braddock has a wife, has kids, and, and at first we see him in this beautiful house. We see him uh, on the top of his, of his boxing game doing great. Then the Great Depression hits. And he hits a curb in his, in his career. He's not able to box. He broke his hand. He's, he gets his license pulled. And he's just scrounging for food like so many others were during that time. And it was in this that he has this conversation. It was one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. He has this conversation with one of his sons. Because in, in a moment, as they're struggling for food, as they're struggling for... Oh, second dead battery. We're really good for this. All right, in in this moment of struggle, in this moment of difficulty, he steals bread from the local store, from the local bakery. And his mom tries asking him, where did you get the bread? And he won't tell, because he doesn't want to admit to him stealing. So Jim Braddock, he takes his son, and he takes takes the bread, and he has him go back to the baker and give it back for stealing but he has this conversation with his son and his son reveals why he did what he did. And he said, well, my classmate got shipped off to one of his, he had to go live with his aunt because his mom and dad couldn't provide for him anymore. And this, you could just tell the son is just worried that he's not going to be around, that he's going to be shipped off. And uh, Jim has this conversation. He's just like, yes, things are hard. Things are difficult, but we don't take, we don't steal We don't take the easy route. And he goes, promise me that you're going to be honest with me and that you won't steal, and I promise that I'm never going to ship you off. So they make that deal right there. And as the movie goes on, unfortunately, things do get worse for them. They get so difficult that they they lose their heat in the middle of winter, and one of the kids start getting super sick. And so they can't, like, the mother in her moment to try and save her own children takes them to extended family who would take them in who would be able to provide for them and as jim comes home from a 12-hour shift of working and sees that his kids aren't there he's just completely distraught he's like i i made a promise that i couldn't give up and it was in that moment that he goes and does everything that he can to get his kids back he goes and gets put on uh, assistance for the first time through the government. And he's still short a little bit to be able to pay to get the lights back on. So he actually goes to his former employment, to the boxing commission, the people that he worked with just to beg for money. And he says, if you guys know me, you know, and I, I had any place else to go, you knew I wouldn't be here. And he ends up taking this moment and he ends up getting enough money to turn the lights back on. And sure enough, there's this huge, great comeback story that I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you got to watch it to see what happens. But uh, great story of a redemption story. But for me, it was that promise that he made to his son that changes everything. Because he made a promise and he wanted it to come true. And I'm, I'm sure all of us have had the experiences of what it feels like to have a promise broken to have a commitment broken and not made true. And what's so great for us is that God doesn't even have that moment of weakness where the promise may or may not come true. When we have God with us, the promises are always guaranteed. They're always going to come true. They may not come true the way that we want them to. They may not come true as quickly as we're hoping them to, but they do come true. And that's what I want us to cling to as we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Emmanuel is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The hope that's there because of that baby born 2,000 years ago, that our lives are being transformed and being made new. And that's true in Hebrews 10. And I want to end with this. This is Hebrews 10, verse 23. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess For he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to us. God is with us. He is with us now. He is going to be with us tomorrow, and he's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. And Christmas is that symbol that God is with us. So today and for the rest of this week, I hope that you guys are just able to celebrate with me Emmanuel, God is with us because God acts, that God is sufficient, He is more than enough, and that God is going to keep all of His promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are, for the blessings that you give us, God, and that, God, I just thank you so much for your character. God, that you are not this, this God, that you're just okay with just being up in heaven and just seeing the difficulties and and the plight that we're in and just saying, oh, I wish I could help, but I, I'm really comfortable where I'm at. No, God, you care so much. You Your character and your love and your mercy pulled you in, beckoned you to act on our behalf, to speak into our lives, to move in and to move into the neighborhood, to take off of your your heavenly robes, and to put on flesh. Yeah, I just can't imagine Uh, the God of the universe with omnipotent power, with being able to know everything, being a baby who has to cry for his mother's milk, with having to be completely dependent on others to provide for you but you did it. You took those steps because you saw us and knew that we needed a way when we had no way. God, help us to remember that. God, help us to remember during this Christmas season how you move and how you act and how your promises that you've made for thousands of years are still true today as they were then. And for that, we can place our lives, the foundation of our lives on those promises, on that hope that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is enough, that he's all we need, and we can just celebrate Emmanuel. God is with us. God, help us to remember that. Help us to live lives of Emmanuel, of God being present with us. May others see us and say there is something more to them than there is with me because of the life-transforming power of God in their lives. God, may we replicate that this morning, and may we replicate that this week, and may we replicate that even into the new year. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, please stand with us and we'll meet